Almost one in five people who live in the US are Latinx. That's more than 60 million people. Spanish is the second most spoken language in the country, with more than 41 million people ages five and older speaking it at home. Yet it remains in the culture a relatively peripheral language. What would it take for Spanish to become a public language in the US? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Dolores Inés Casillas in this new episode of El Café Latinas. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Wojcicki. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamid bin Khalif Al Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx or Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today Dolores Inés Casillas. Ines is Professor of Chicana and Chicano Studies and Director of the Chicano Studies Institute at the University of California at Santa Barbara, where she has been since 2007. Before then, she did her undergraduate studies at the University of California at Davis and her three graduate degrees at the University of Michigan at Arbor, where she obtained her PhD in 2006 in at the field of American culture. Her research focuses primarily on immigrant engagement with US Spanish language and bilingual media and the representation of accented Spanish and English languages within popular culture. She is the author of Sounds of Belonging, US Spanish language radio and public advocacy, which was published by NYU Press in 2014 and received not one, but two awards from the, so the American Association for Hispanic in Higher, Hispanics in Higher Education and the Latin American Studies Association. She has also co-edited Companion to Latina and Latino Media Studies with Maria Elena Cepeda, which came out uh, in 2016 with Rutledge and also co-edited Feeling It, Language, Race and Affect in Latinx Youth Learning, which he co-edited with Mary Buchholz and Jing Suk Lee, which came out with Rutledge in 2018. Her current book manuscript, uh, which is under contract with NYU Press, Language, Power, and Immigrant Media Practices Across Generations, explores the politics of language learning and language play as heard through different media technologies. It is a true honor to have Ines uh, today as our guest in El Café Latinx. Welcome, Ines. Thank you so much, Pablo. It's a beautiful introduction. 
Thank you for being here with us today. So, so how did it all begin for you? That is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? You know, I was going to start with the story about my first mentor in college, but I think it really starts from the moment when you feel, um, just to be very blunt, smart, or you get rewarded or kind of prized for, I think, just being intellectually curious. And I think that actually started, I, I was raised in this small town in Northern California. And in fourth grade, I got my picture published in the local newspaper, population 3000. When I say it was a pueblito, it was a small town. And I got my picture um, published in the local paper because I checked out the most number of books from the public library. We lived a walking distance from the public library, and it was the only place my mom would let me go um, by myself and come back. So I loved it, right? And I think the fact that that librarian did that was the first moment where I thought you could be intellectually curious, right? So maybe not thinking I was smart at that moment, but that the act of trying to discover or trying to learn more was something of value. Very interesting. And then um, when it came time to go to college, how was the experience there? Um, why UC Davis? Oh my goodness, Pablo. Um, I don't have a very sophisticated story about UC Davis. To be perfectly honest, it was the only college that I toured as part of a classroom um, field trip when I was in eighth grade. And I remember seeing students on bicycles with their backpacks and everyone looked like they were in a rush to get somewhere. And I was mesmerized by this energy there, right? So throughout high school, I kept thinking, I want to go to UC Davis. I would imagine what my bike would look like. Would I have a basket in front of it for the books? Would I have it behind me? And then, um, and, and UC Davis, I should note, was the closest University of California campus to my house. So I was the first out of the five siblings, I was the first to go straight to a four-year college. And I knew that my mom would be nervous. Mujer, sola, 18 años. So I felt that I knew this would be safe. Um, so just to try and keep all parties happy, the fact that I would be going to a four-year and kind of having a new bicycle and that my mom would feel safe, UC Davis was a great choice for me. And then I see that you major in gender and women's studies, but then you went immediately from there to Michigan to get uh, one of your three graduate degrees, the first one in education, right? right? Um, in curriculum theory and development. Am I inferring correctly in thinking that you wanted to be a teacher? Well, all good Chicanas want to be teachers. That's my theory. <laughs> we all want, you know, and I think I, my family encouraged it. They're like, you know, tienen un seguro bien, you get health, you get health insurance, you don't have to work in the summers. And as you know, to be a maestra is a, 
a title that deems respect, right? Um, es un titulo, and I think that's what was very attractive by it. So I feel like I always had community support. Um, I, you know, I've always been known as being very amiguera, very chatty. So they thought being a teacher would be a great fit. So I went to Michigan um, and I almost completed the, I'm short a few hours to get the teaching credential in social studies for high school. Um, but before then I then transferred to my doctoral program. But uh, master, uh, the masters at Michigan, um, they actually offered really good funding for master's programs, which is really rare. So I will go to Snow or wherever you want to invite me to if you offered me a fellowship for that master's, which is what I ended up in the Midwest, which I actually really enjoyed my time at Michigan a lot. I was gonna ask you, I mean, Michigan and Arbor is very different from Davis um, mm -hmm. um, or from small town in Northern California, not very far from Davis. I'm assuming based on what you said. So. How was your experience uh, as a Chicana there and, you know, as in, in graduate school? It was really disorienting at first. Um, I think I, I started taking for granted the fact that California is so immigrant dominant um, and Latinx heavy. Um, but it was also an opportunity to re to be a part of organizations and classes with a lot of other students of color. In fact, Michigan has um, or had a graduate organization that was a students of color of Rackham. Rackham was the name of the graduate school at Michigan. And that became, and it was African-American dominant. You, at meetings, you could probably count on two hands how many Latinx grad students were there, but it was, such an enriching experience, right? Um, so I think I gravitated towards coalitions and organizations that had other graduate students of color that I thought was really helpful um, as a survival mechanism um, and not survival in, in the dramatic sense, but I think as a way of not feeling isolated. Because I think one thing that academia can do and grad school can do is it can feel isolating and it almost, commands you to be isolated in some instance, to finish that book, either to read it or to write it. Um, it's a very focused kind of amount of attention. So, so going back in time, how and why was the transition from, I'm gonna be a teacher to I'm gonna be a scholar, right? Of American culture um, and media, and, and race and ethnicity. How, how was that shift for you? It actually wasn't as difficult. I started getting interested in education on ideas of informal curriculums or hidden curriculums or popular curriculums. This was at the rise of Henry Giroux's work who, that was considered you know, incredibly radical during this time, the late 1990s. So really encouraging like um, how, where else do we learn things? So I was very much interested in thinking about how other people learn about um, Latinx communities through um, a hodgepodge kind of informal curriculum. 
Um, and then I realized that so much of this was about a racial analysis, a media analysis, that I needed to be in a program that nurtured that. And American culture at Michigan is a very interdisciplinary program and it encourages a disciplinary spine. So you have to have your theories and methods in a particular discipline. And so for me, that was communications. Um, so I did, my co-chairs was Frances Aparicio. She left Michigan eventually for Northwestern. Um, she was my co-chair. Um, her book, Listening to Salsa, was instrumental in me thinking about ideas of sound and distance um, and how that mobilizes um, feelings of affect. And my other co-chair was Susan J. Douglas, who wrote a book called Listening In, which is like beautiful cultural history of different radio hosts. And I remember a conversation with her. She said, you can write one about Spanish language radio. So I tried, you know, to do my best in that with Sounds of Belonging. That's very interesting. So your, your, your focus on sound and radio, uh, I'm learning, was in part a byproduct of working with Francis and with Susan. Yes, like a mix of those two. Yes. That's fascinating. And when you transition from education to uh, media studies and American culture, did you consider other doctoral programs? Or since you were at Michigan and there was funding, you decided to just stay there and apply only to Michigan? I thought, you know what, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to keep staying here and if I'm going to do this, this is where I want to do it. At that point, before I had a, I had officially transferred to American culture. I mean, I had to apply, but I had already been taking seminar courses as my electives in American culture. And I love them. I found myself like not just reading two or three chapters from that book, but reading it cover to cover. Um, I found myself getting bored in my education classes and really wanting to pursue more topics about media and sound and race. So that to me was just a telltale sign that um, I, I think that I needed to be nurtured elsewhere. Okay, and how was the experience of graduate school, not professionally oriented graduate school, but research oriented graduate school, right? Not the masters, but the PhD. How was the experience for you? It was great. I mean, I think that, I think that a lot of people have horror stories about graduate school. Um, and I find myself so fortunate that I don't feel I had that experience. And I want to stress that that's because I think I had institutional support that a lot of grad students today do not have. So a University of Michigan was very generous with um, their graduate funding for students of color. Now, I always want to remind people it's not because Michigan's wonderful and they thought about this, but it's because in the 1980s, Puerto Rican students, African-American students, and Chicanos went on a hunger strike to demand that more fellowships be assigned to um, underrepresented students. So over time, that definition criteria, underrepresented students, um, widened. So now the diversity, it's not just limited to those three, but to other underrepresented groups. So the funding was key, right? Um, you don't have to worry from one semester to the other 
about your funding if you have a multi-year package. Um, and when you have good funding, it gives you time to explore a research project in depth, right? So I think kind of institutionally, it was a good place to do research or to learn research skills. Okay, and when it time to, so did you, did you consider, um, you know, options other than becoming a professor after uh, the, you know, doctoral program was going to be over? Yeah, I mean, I think even during grad school, it's such a long haul, you start daydreaming about what your side gig is going to be if this doesn't work out. <laughs> so um, I love paper. I'm a big paper pen person. Um, so for a long time, I thought I would open up my own stationery store, um, which sounds kind of like the office-ish now, like producing paper in a paperless society kind of thing. Um, I also, and during graduate school, I tutored senior citizens on um, computer skills. So that was like my side gig. Um, so how to turn on your computer or how to shut it down. I would go to homes of 70 year olds where they would unplug the computer. And I'm like, actually, we're gonna learn how to shut down your computer today. So um, I felt I had a lot of patience with them um, and I had a really good rapport with seniors. So then I thought, well, if this doesn't work out, if I don't get a faculty position, I can start my own nonprofit and we can just be offering workshops and classes to senior citizens. Because even then I started noticing just such a divide between different engagement with different media technologies. Okay. And, but, you know, fortunately for us, you didn't have to resort to those. <laughs> um, you, you were very successful. I mean, you declined many fellowships, for instance. And um, tell us how was the, the job market experience for you and why going back to California? Yeah, well, my family's still in California and I, the job market back then, which was about 15 years ago, seemed so incredibly different than now. It just seems like such a different beast right now. And I feel like even in my own mentoring and training of graduate students, I find myself nudging or pushing them a little bit more than I feel I got nudged or pushed. And I, I have to tell myself, like, I think I'm just responding to the market sometimes, right? Um, how these different standards have changed for securing a job. But um, I was fortunate to have California interested in my work. And, you know, I had a, a friend of mine who once said that she really believes in research fairies that every once in a while when something doesn't seem to click, a research fairy will come and like help you. And at the time that I was applying for jobs, I was finishing my dissertation and I used to have this set job talk where it would take me 10 minutes to explain what radio was, what Spanish language radio was, what Latinos were, right? But that year, 2006, we had a record number of immigrants marching in the streets in Los Angeles because radio hosts organized them. 
So it was all over the media. And my favorite title was Joel Stein and Time Magazine. He titled it 500,000 people and nobody called me. And it was the story was that, you know, English and there's this divide between English and Spanish language media. It, that occurred. My research fairy gave me that event because I was on the job market at the same time. So I had these extra 10 minutes to kind of just jump into it and make an even stronger case as to why radio is not something that we used to do, but it's something that is still vibrant and used today. And, you know, if you think about your experience then, and as you said just a few minutes ago, the situation now and, you know, your conversations with your students, how would you characterize the changes and, and what do you advise your students uh, in the current context so that uh, other students, not only those who have the privilege of working with you, but others uh, can learn from? I want to be, I'm, I tend to, if you haven't noticed this, Pablo, I tend to want to always lean towards the more optimistic side, <laughs> you know, um, I think it's a, a good way and guide of life. I think there's just simply so many people competing for not enough jobs. And I think something that I always tell my students is um, they might get nervous because they're going to apply for a job and they know the four other people who might apply for it too. And I always say that's going to be, that's the way it's going to be for the rest of your career. It's going to be the same, you know, handful of people who do the same topic and that's okay. Right. And to, I really try and encourage people the mindset that everybody can go to the same archive, but you're going to view it differently. Right. Um, so in order, what I always try and tell my students who are mainly students of color, first-generation grad students, is that what's gonna distinguish you from everybody else and their mother who's applying for the same job you are, is that you have a methodology, you have a way of looking at an archive or listening to a text because you are a student of color, because you're Latinx, because you're first-generation that those kind of lived experiences are your greatest tools that you need to channel into your work to distinguish yourself from others. Okay, very, very interesting. And how then from that, from that position, how do you choose your own research topics? And how do you carry on your own research? Okay, well, Pablo, they choose us, we don't choose them. <laughs> Um, I, Spanish language radio actually came from a top, from a seminar paper. I was like, I'm going to write a paper about Spanish language radio. Right. And I noticed it. I went to a coffee shop or something and I was stuck getting like the little table towards the back. And I was like, oh, I love this. I can hear rancheras all morning while I work. Cause the, it was a cafe shop that also served some food and the workers in the back were playing rancheras. Um, and I was like, oh, I should write a paper in media about this. And I discovered there was one book written on it and it was published in 1976 or 1978. Um, Felix Gutierrez and Jorge Chamet. Um, they published this one book and I couldn't believe it. I just remember I went to the librarian and this is a topic, this and that. 
nope, this is the one book. Um, and there's a, like less than a handful of articles. And that's when I knew, wow, this is it. How could, how could such a popular medium that we hear so much not be documented more? So that's how I pursued radio. Um, and then I mentioned this in my talk that just randomly kind of looking at different books about how to speak Spanish to your help. Um, and the long history of that stemming from the 1950s um, or different or memories of Ingles in Barreras, even when we see it during popper culture, it all kind of led me to thinking about, wow, look how popular um, audio sets still are for immigrants and why people still use them. Very interesting. Now, Ines, your, your work has documented and analyzed many of the key ways in which um, the Latinx experience in the US um, in many ways remains peripheral to mainstream culture, right? And um, language being one key dimension in which it happens, right? I mean, right. the Latinx population is almost 19%, so one in five essentially in this country, um, 60 plus million, more than 40 million are dominant Spanish speakers. What would it take for Spanish to reach a certain level of parity, you know, in terms of language relative to English in this country? You know, we don't acknowledge Spanish as a public language. You know, we, to have the United States be the second largest Spanish speaking country in the world, but yet we don't acknowledge it as a public language. It's still a foreign language in classes, a modern language, a romance language. And in California, um, bilingual education up until two years ago for 15 years, it was controversial. It was quote unquote banned according to a proposition. Um, and that's 15 years, that's an entire generation of students. Right. And I see those students as a professor who are embarrassed of their Spanish skills. And I always tell them embarrassment that is learned. And when you're embarrassed of your language, you're embarrassed of your family, you're embarrassed of your culture. That's how it starts. And that's something that's learned. And in my classes, the first thing I say is like, we're going to decolonize all those ideas. And I have a small seminar about politics of language and politics of accents and translations. And if everybody has not cried by week three, I have not done my job, basically, because we are going to start with this, right? Let's just finish it, and then we can move on to analyzing different systemic structures about it. Um, let me see. I got a little off track. Oh, you said, what would it take in terms of sense of parity? So, yeah, I think just that sense of like recognition, right? Um, of praising it more as a language that's not um, something you only use with domestic workers, um, of giving it the same parity of importance and modernity as we give other languages. Excellent. And then if we take the level of analysis from society in general, to the academy, where do you see the place of Spanish 
in the humanities and social sciences, in particular, and you know, in media studies, communication studies, uh, American studies. The role, can you repeat that, Fabio? The role of, of language, in particular Spanish, yeah. right? Yeah, uh, and I think the role of Spanish within communication and media studies is so incredibly important. And I mean, I love the institutional inroads that um, Jessica Retis at Arizona is making. I mean, she started a master's program in journalism for Spanish speaking Latinos. There's another program similar to that at UNLV. Those are foundational. Those are pathbreaking programs, things that should have been done really decades ago, right? So I really, I thank those two institutions in particular for um, really paving the way to have a training ground for those type of journalists, right? Um, because I think in doing that, I think they're acknowledging um, the disproportionate numbers of um, Latinx journalists and people in the media and communications. I do wanna say that in terms of the role of language, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why I love Chicano Chicano studies so much, because I think a lot of times when I get invited to places, they're like, oh, oh, where, oh, you've been there such a long time, and where are you from? And I think this department allows me such a sense of creativity. I mean, they allow me to ask research questions and approach it as long as they're, you know, rigorous. Um, and well-researched, they are so welcoming of these type of questions. And I also feel that in all our research agendas, there's a sense of advocacy behind it when you deal with Latinx communities. And I love how that's not, um, that's not washed down in my department. You know, that's our goal together as a community to make sure that our research questions have political impacts, that our research questions question like systems of power. Excellent. And um, uh, you are not only a faculty member in that department, you are also a, an institutional leader, right? You mentioned uh, Jessica. Uh, you also direct the, an institute at UCSB. Um, what lessons have you learned about leading in the academy, right? Well, that you um, that you could share with others. That's a really great question. I didn't think I would ever be kind of in an administrative leadership role, but this opportunity came and. I love what it affords. And, and I don't know, Pablo, if you feel the same way in terms of the center, but to be in charge of the Institute, it's a small research center. I play a small part in encouraging undergraduates to be research assistants on research projects. I talk to junior faculty and how to draft and submit specific proposals. Um, I give out uh, dissertation research grants to graduate students. Um, and in some ways, I am influencing specific research agendas to encourage more research about, you know, Chicanos and Latinx communities um, and immigrant communities. And two, I think I'm playing a part in this pipeline. And not just to have people finish, but because we need more people of color 
in leadership positions um, in the academy. So I always feel that that's my part right now. Like that's my role and my job right now is to try and play this kind of institutional support and mentorship for that. Excellent. And, and what would you say then? I mean, the numbers continue to be unfavorable, right? Relative to, um, you know, demographics in the, in the population at large. Right? There are significant levels of underrepresentation, both for Blacks and for Latinx people in the academy, even more so as you move up the ranks. What in your experience have been the main roadblocks? And now that you have a leadership role, what do you think could be the most um, productive strategies to sort of move forward in the right. issue? Well, I think that a lot of times when we talk about how can we help undergraduates or graduate students um, complete undergraduate degrees or pursue doctoral degrees and finish those, there's this narrative about navigating. You have to navigate a campus. You have to navigate a predominantly white culture. You have to have navigational capital to do this or that. And I really disagree with that. I feel that we're still placing so much of the, of the responsibility on these students to learn completely new structures and work around them. When in actuality, these structures and institutions should change, right? For, to cater more towards students of color. Um, you know, and I think about this when we think about just educational rates, you know, in California, for every 100 students that stop, every 100 Latinos who start K through 12, 60 will not finish. And those type of rates, at what point are you going to say, is this something structural? Like there's, this is a, such a complete failure on the part that it's not serving Latino students that we need to scrap something altogether, right? So I feel that even in my own mentoring with students, I take absolutely nothing for granted. I, I feel like I should always start with a basic description of any kind of program or detail or um, you know, when we're discussing a paper or research or any of that sort of thing. Um, yeah, I just I feel that that we need to be more proactive as as leadership and as faculty. Very good. Um, and before I, I pose the next question, um, I I forgot to include before you know, indigenous communities in addition to um, Black and African American and Latinx and Hispanic. So so if we scale this up to the field of communication and media studies as a whole, right? Um, if you had magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the field to change as a whole, what would you wish for? Well, Pablo, I think you've also seen the same publications I have, like publications that start with um, hashtag communication studies so white or hashtag media studies so white. And 
I do wish that because communications and media is such a daily existence in our lives, you know, especially I think we should, if it's even more heightened now with the pandemic, our reliance on digital tools, that media and communications departments absolutely have to view um, diverse communities and issues of equity and justice as a fabric completely embedded in their courses and in their research. And too often we see these departments where they have the one scholar who does, you know, black technologies, the one Latinx scholar, right? And kind of assuming that they can encompass every single media technology, right? Or every single kind of Latinx population in the United States, which is not the case. And that's why in my own talk, I'm very direct about like, I do Mexican directed communities. I'm not gonna speak on behalf of Cubans. I'm not gonna speak on behalf of anybody else, right? I have a hard enough time speaking on behalf of 60 million Mexicans, you know, <laughs> like, let me focus on that. Thank you so much uh, for this wonderful and most important conversation, Ines. Thank you to our listeners for staying with us uh, through the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Goodbye. Thank you. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mora Matassi.